Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is Writers on Film, the only podcast dedicated to books on cinema. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Writers on Film. My name is John Bleasdell. I'm a writer and film critic. And today I'm going to be talking, I've invited back a couple of great guests, uh, Michael Leader and Jake Cunningham. They are the pair behind the podcast and the successful book Ghibliotech. Um, uh, we've talked about the studio Ghibli uh, before, uh, but now they've got a new book, which is a brilliant introduction to anime via 30 movies uh, that they have chosen and they write about in uh, in a really interesting and entertaining fashion. It's a really uh, perfect guide for anybody who uh, wants to dip their toe in the anime universe and don't know where to start, or for people who already know their anime and want to read some background and uh, some some context. Oh, God, my cat is meowing in the background, if you can hear it. Um, if you enjoyed the episode, please remember to... Um, to like and subscribe, to leave a review, that helps a lot, to tell your friends, to share, to tweet, to use the social medias. Well, Twitter's gone a bit weird now, but anyway, let's stick with it until until we can, until we can bear it. Um, I've also, in a, a little bit of extra news, I've also uh, started a Substack um, series of essays uh, connected to the writers on film 
my poor cat I need to go and open the door anyway there's a, a series of essays the first one is available so I'll put the link in the show notes and if you could subscribe to the if you could subscribe to them that would be well that would be brilliant oh and also uh, I've got a lot of people following and listening from different countries around the world and I'd like to just make sure I uh, salute them particularly Andrea in uh, Italy is uh, is a bit of a fan so I wanted to have a quick shout out to him if anybody wants to communicate with me and ask for a shout out I'd be more than happy to oblige like some sort of crazed DJ at a wedding disco. Um, brilliant. So, but so, uh, what did I say? Reviews, uh, likes, uh, subscribe. Um, follow me on Twitter at Dr. John T D R J O N T Y. My parody account. Right, I've got to go and feed the cat. Okay, but before you do any of that, enjoy the conversation. you're so it irritates me so much because you know that thing about like I, I i've got friends at psychology department in liverpool and they t- i remember this is 20 odd years ago they're telling me that um they did research and they found out that having a coffee does one thing to the brain and having a cigarette does another thing to the brain but having a coffee and a cigarette sort of just goes off the scale just absolutely blows it and i've i've the same relationship with books and films that uh, I love films and I love books, but if I have a book about films that, so I'm reading this, your anime book and I'm just filling in my watch list of like, I'm just getting so excited about these movies that I've, I've, uh, that you're, you're, you're introducing to me and hopefully many other people. Um, so congratulations on the book guys. Absolutely brilliant. But yeah, I mean, irritating because now I've got a freaking huge watch list of films to go through. Well, I mean, it's irritating for me because Michael just keeps giving me things to watch as well, John. Um, so he, he's done the, the hard work. He's already watched them all. He knows everything about them. And then it's like I'm being set homework again, even though I left school like 20 years ago. Have you sorted that out in your contract? Do you sort of get paid more, Jake, because you have to do much more work? Hey. I yeah uh, I I get paid I should be getting paid so much more but if you if you noticed John um there was a there was a fraught whole Lennon McCartney situation that Michael's name does come first on the book even though my name is of course higher in the alphabet so you know that's his payment I think that's how that's how we paid him off it's, it's age before beauty that's what it is <laughs> <laughs> but how how was uh, so when did this book come out it came out like a few weeks ago right. In the UK, yes, it finally came out uh, for the last week of October. It was supposed to come out earlier in October, but there were there was delays in the shipping. So there was a, a freighter container full of our book that was in the backlog um, at the ports where there were strikes. Absolutely no problem with that. But uh, it, it created an interesting situation where actually the French language and German language editions of the book came out first because they hit their uh, initial release date. So we were getting pictures from friends who live and work in France um, of, of our book on shelves in, in French before it came out in the UK. So yeah, it came out in the UK finally, uh, end of October. It's out in the States, I think, in December. But it's slowly finding its way um, around the world. Permeating around the world. 
Yes. <laughs> I mean, who knew that, um, you know, people who remained in the European Union would have a smoother... Uh, <laughs> I, I'm not... I'm, yeah. Just, I'm just baffled, just wondering, just off the top of my head, scratching my head. But, John, we've got our freedom back, <laughs> and you can't put a price on that, can you? And your beautiful blue made-in-Belgium passports as well. So, uh... Well, I got I got mine, and it's definitely not blue. Mm. It's, it's black. That's the weird thing. They made all this fuss about it, and it is, it is not a blue passport. I, I, it's just bananas, isn't and it? Jake, you're, you're still a European citizen, aren't you, as well? Or is that still ongoing? Oh, well, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm Irish, but um, yeah, that's still waiting for my... So COVID put the um, put the kibosh on any uh, admin from any government institution that wasn't related to the dealing with of COVID. So there's enormous backlog, but mm. I will hopefully soon have... Going back to my purple passport. Purple, maroon-ish. Claret. Yeah. <laughs> my, uh, my whole UK side of the family is currently sort of... Uh, applying for their Irish passports because we're Irish on my mother's side, so uh, my brother and uh, and my mum are all all going for it, which is which is funny. Yeah, I think there's going to be a real spike of Irish citizens <laughs> yeah. over the last few years. Everyone's going to be drinking Guinness and doing jigs. It's going to be amazing. Going to Cayley's. <laughs> it's going to be like going to U- Liverpool University all over again with everyone pretending that they've got Irish roots. <laughs> <laughs> but back to the book <laughs> back to the book after our slight divergence i mean one thing I, i'd say right from the get-go is when i started reading this book as opposed to ghibli because ghibli i knew fairly well in terms of you know the films i'd watch for my kids with this book i thought right anime i haven't I, this is completely new territory but then as i read the book um there were several, there were much more films that I'd actually watched. So even as someone who I would never consider myself an anime person or in any way like a huge anime fan, I'd still watched, I'd I'd watched Akira, I'd watched Ghost in the Shell, I'd watched Your Name, and I'd watched Whisper in the Heart, I think. That's that's from the previous book. So there would have been a different... No, it was was something else. There was another one on... uh, No, it was definitely... He, he's he's looking at the contents now. I'll tell you. I'll tell you exactly which one it was then. Uh, a silent voice. Ah, yes. Oh, lovely. A silent yeah. voice. Well, in a way, John, you're the perfect audience for this book uh, because the first book was all about Studio Ghibli, and that was very much a lot of people's gateway into anime. They might even not be thinking of that as anime. And then the new book is a kind of follow-on from that, and so you might have people just like yourself who have maybe seen an Akira or seen a ghost in the shell and we're kind of maybe getting you on the hard stuff at this point as well we wanted to kind of broaden all your tastes within anime and show you that it's not all kind of scary ultra violent stuff it's not all tv series that last for 900 episodes um there's a lot more going on there as well and it's not it's not very intimidating that's the point as well that this is a very accessible yeah i suppose it's like formulating the sort of perfect pub quiz like you don't want Mm. everybody to be foxed and get zero out of whatever so we have those handful of anchor films that we know can be on the cover if someone looks into the chapter list they'll recognize a few and then these are the films to go deeper that are all yeah similarly accessible both in terms of getting your hands on the films but also in terms of their approachability um, as viewing experiences as well and you've used the movie trick as well, haven't you? If, uh, you've you've got thirty 
films, which is a really manageable sort of quantity that I can, you know, you can put, you can make a watch list of 30 films and know that in a, you can over a number of months, you can, you can go through them and, and watch them. Um, yeah. And it's, it's not too many. It's not sort of like, Oh, okay, I'm never going to make this. It's, it's an interesting number because, you know, I, I'm, I'm quite a fan of lists, but also I hate making lists as well. Um, of course, most film fans and film people in the film industry are thinking about the sight and sound greatest films list and the headache that comes with that. 30 feels like an interesting number because it's not 10. 10 or 15 may feel like you have to have the absolute essentials and it has to feel definitive. If you have, there's a book that came out a few years ago by Helen McCarthy, who's an absolute legendary uh, anime critic in the English-speaking world. She did 500 anime films. Um, but whereas 30 feels like a nice place between definitive and comprehensive, where we can mm-hmm. have those big hitters, deeper cuts, a couple of um, fun editions uh, that are more reflective of our taste and background as well. Um, so you can have a bit more fun with 30, I think. It's a good number. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I, I've already started filling up my list. And before... <laughs> before the... Um... Uh, before Jake joined us, I was just set, talking to my, uh, Mike that um, I was watching, what was it, uh, Promare on Netflix. I'd, I'd just gone through the Italian Netflix and was was checking off all the films that I could watch there, um, of which there were quite a few, of which there are, you know, a good, good selection. I mean, they've got all the, the Ghibli films, obviously, but there's a really good selection of anime generally. One question I would ask is, like, um, a film like Cowboy Bebop or uh, Evangelion, mm-hmm. Um, excuse me if I mispronounce anything. Do 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 correct me if I do. Um, uh, they they they're coming off the back of sort of fairly long series. Is it, do, you, do you, would you advise watching the series or or would you say watch the film and then if you fancy it go back to the series? What would well this this feeds into some of the many rules that we set ourselves when we were cracking this list, and we wanted to prioritize feature filmmaking as in the cinema experience or at least the two hour plus or if you're lucky 90 minute viewing experience um and that is only really one half even not even half it's it's one corner of the anime industry the biggest area is tv animation and now increasingly so in terms of box office returns the the biggest area is spin-offs from long-running series. So as we speak, One Piece Red is about to come out, which has broken all sorts of records. It's the 14th... Is it the 14th? It's definitely double figures number of features in the One Piece series, which is itself spinning off from a long, long, long-running anime series as well. And so when we had this in mind of as a person could pick up the book, read about a film, sit down and watch it in a couple of hours... With Cowboy Bebop and Evangelion, there's there's some specific stuff there. Cowboy Bebop is a series that ran in the early 2000s, was very cine-literate. Each episode is packed with film references. But then when the, the opportunity arose, when they finished the, fil- the series to make a film, they wanted that to be its own thing. So, of course, it's the same characters, same world, and does have its, mo- its sort of point in the chronology of the series where it lands they envisioned this as serving a different audience, people who may not have seen the film. So it is, a, it is intended to be a routine, an adjunct to the series. And Evangelion 
you're opening a can of worms there, John, uh, because uh, Hideaki Anno, who's the filmmaker behind um, Evangelion, is a bit of a sort of beloved but also controversial figure within anime fandom. Uh, and in the book, we liken him to George Lucas in the sense that Evangelion was his the, the the series in the '90s that made his name, got him huge amounts of acclaim, huge amounts of very rabid fans. Um, but it was also a, an undertaking that sort of broke him, sort of emotionally, psychologically, and budget-wise as well. And so the ending of that TV series in its initial twenty-odd episode run um, very much goes off the rails, and was very controversial, divided audiences. And so in the years since that first broadcast, he has made a few films that sort of tried to correct that original series. Meanwhile, Evangelion's massive in terms of merchandising, in terms of cross-promotional everything. It's a huge money spinner, even though it's actually quite a very complex um, and hard to, quite a a, um, a heavy series to get in, involved in. But then in the mid-2000s, he was then given almost a carte blanche blank check you retell Evangelion from scratch the way you want to do it. And it's called the Rebuild series. And he sees this as almost the cinematic retelling of the series. So you can have this relationship with the original series if you want to, but it is also a, it turns it into a film franchise. And um, fans of the series can watch it and be confounded and delighted by the way that it replays the hits, but also departs from it. Um, but it's intended to introduce this, the, the series to a new audience. And he talks about it in a really interesting way, because he says that he wanted Evangelion to exist almost like um, Ultraman or Godzilla, these heroes in these huge film franchises and characters in Japan that can be reshaped for every new generation in a similar way to, I guess, Doctor Who and James Bond. Um, in in sort of British filmmaking history. So that's why we included those, even though they are connected to TV series. Um, and also, if you want to watch those TV series, they are only 26 episodes rather than 900, which is the case with some of the bigger franchises. But the great thing is, as part of Jake's research, he, he did go and watch all of Evangelion, and his brain has been changed forever by that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it has. Well, um, I'm thankful for it. So you would advise watching the TV show then, Jake? Oh, hundred percent. Right. Um, I'm a big, um, like huge Twin Peaks fan, right? And like something that I may well have squeezed into my sight and sound list. Who's to say? Um, and Evangelion, weirdly, which is a show about kind of giant robots fighting giant aliens. Um, to be very reductive about it, is so close to <laughs> Twin Peaks. Mike is shaking his head. <laughs> Thinking of the the fan yeah. mail we're getting, the listener mail. How dare you call them aliens? <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. Apologies to everyone, um, but that's to anyone that hasn't watched it as a way of kind of getting them into it. Um, but think like in that way, it's um, it kind of hooked me because it's in the same way that Twin Peaks is is not really about who who killed Laura Palmer. Um, Evangelion is not about giant robots fighting giant aliens. Right, right. That's, uh, I'm, I'm really intrigued. I'm really intrigued. And having read, there's something about uh, seeing the history of, because you go kind of chronologically over uh, the way you order the films, and um, see, reading it, you know, one film after another and going through the, the, the background essays that 
Yeah, so I, I do the do the history and background because I suppose I so even though Jake does all of the watching for the first time, that bulk of the work in terms of the sort of early research and development for the list, that's on me. So I suppose I make the case for why the films are in there in the history and context, mm. and talk about the filmmakers and why we're featuring the films. And then Jake has his, you know, increasingly expert uh, view uh, on the films as as animation as well. But I think it's, it's important to say that we're not saying all of these are perfect mm. as well. And jo- John, you would have read in the reviews that we're like, I'm not kind of saying that all of them are masterpieces and a lot of them are flawed and we do raise that. Um, but I think it's about that chronological journey and that you can see a story of Japanese animation along those 30 films in the same way that we told with Studio Ghibli, where we said, again, not all of these are perfect, but through them you can see the evolution of the studio yeah and it's, it's it's not it's what's really fascinating about the chronological approach that we discovered as we were sort of writing it I had, we had an inkling as we put the list together but it was the sense that um whereas with the ghibli book it was the evolution of the studio the people behind the films their um sort of platform their global recognition whereas with this you have these really fascinating mini narratives that come to you know into and out of focus that um tells a story of i guess english speaking the english speaking world's view of anime that i love that there's almost like a, a four or five chapter run in the middle of the book where we go from akira um through ghost in the shell where it tells the story of john you may have experience of manga uk the mm. distributor the, the the home entertainment label that came to prominence in the 1990s off the back of the surprise um, cult success of Akira. And then they sort of scrambled around to then bring more films from Japan that could serve a very particular audience and very particular uh, view of what Japanese animation could be. Very glossy, violent, hyper-stylized, which jars with you know the, the sort of broad church that Japanese animation is. So there, there, there are these really the, like, chronological approach we're not saying that we have the definitive insider's view of how Japanese animation works because we can only ever really write from our own perspective. But within that, we we do bring up some interesting stories because I suppose Jake is a little bit younger than I am and I fit almost between the two generations of... I was old enough to see the in in the local video shop a lot of these videos that came out in the 1990s that had 18 labels on them that I c- couldn't watch but was very beguiled and terrified by the cover of Legend of the Overfiend or Fist of the North Star, etc. But then when I was a teenager, it's the sort of post-Pokemon turn of the cent- turn of the new millennium thing where every cool filmmaker in Hollywood working in sci-fi was talking about anime and that's where we Mm. we then have the matrix we have the animatrix in here because the wakowskis were very clear when the matrix came out that they were inspired by anime and likewise we probably the most indulgent inclusion we have is um the daft punk visual album interstellar 5555 which Mm. um is basically the entirety of their discovery album in music video form made by a Japanese animation studio. But that was a point where if you were like a teenager in 2001, it felt like Japanese animation was the, the coolest thing it could be and was slightly different from maybe the Well, and, and would have been, for, for so many people, myself included, 
without them realizing their first encounter mm -hmm. with anime because if you were watching mtv at that time you couldn't escape the music videos from discovery and all of those music videos were scenes from the mm -hmm. film and it's only kind of 10 15 20 years later that you think oh god yeah that is where that's from that's that's why that feels so mm -hmm. familiar and both of those phases sort of predated the um I'm going to say mainstream, but it's not, of course not fully mainstream, but at least the sort of mainstream rise of Ghibli in the UK, because mm. those films mm. only started coming out um, in cinemas, but but specifically on home end in the mid 2000s. So mm. there were these sort of there are always these waves of interest in Japanese animation. It's funny whenever the Guardian or the BBC do a do coverage of this new thing, this cool hip new thing coming from Japan called anime. They do that every five to ten years, but really, of course, Japanese animation has been an industry now uh, since the 1950s and it's, going, it's, it's always been successful and popular in Japan in its own way. It's just we, are, we only ever get this little sort of through the keyhole view of it. I, I want to ask a stupid question, so forgive me if it's stupid and I'll cut it out. We, we talk about anime as if it's kind of a genre, uh, as these generic elements and these things that are... Is, is that a recognisable thing, like... I suppose this leads on from my from the previous point. Is it just no anime is just Japanese for cartoons, or is it no? Uh, there is a sort of there are specific there is anime which is has a specific sort of generic uh, identity. Well, yeah, okay, anime it can be used to um, as a, as a catch-all tag for animation that comes from Japan. I liken it to name any of your popular buzzy uh, musical genre terms like grunge or Britpop, maybe even hip hop actually because hip hop mm. it sorry michael you're so 90s <laughs> like, that's amazing Trap. name any of you yeah <laughs> so let, let me let me tell what's, you what's, what, what's everyone listening to Britpop, no. grunge? that's new isn't it hip hop but I think I, I'm I'm harking back to a time where there was a media that 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 had the power to put a stamp on disparate elements to call it one thing when really it wasn't. But maybe hip hop's a good one because hip hop can be a type of music, it can be a type of trend, it can be a type of culture, it can include art, it can include music, and all this other stuff. But um, in terms of the Britpop thing, it is also mainly something that has been just as much created by distribution patterns worldwide. Our understanding of what anime is, is very different maybe to if you ask somebody from Japan what it is, because of all those ways that they've been pushed into pigeonholes of glossy, hyper-stylized violent films or something for kids or something that's, um, uh, you know, Ghibli. If you ask Miyazaki if his films are anime, he'd say no. He, he, he sees them as animated films. And he he, mm. he, he he believes their films should be judged on the world stage um, alongside any other. Um, because I suppose anime as a fandom and a fan culture does exist in Japan. And it's the pockets within pockets. There's um, Hideaki Anno and, and Evangelion as part of a generation of the people who were brought up on animation. That they, they, they very much define themselves as that in the 1980s as they rose to prominence, which I suppose is similar to the waves of um, development within other sort of semi-popular cult media like comic books, where comics could be anything, right? You know, right. Any form of story told in a sequential art style. However, comics to some people means 
Marvel DC superhero comics. And there, there are fans who very much align their identity to the trappings of that cultural or social movement. Um, but for us, we use anime as the sort of general, commonly recognized and understandable term for Japanese animation. And within the book, even though there's a lot of conventional anime films, there are also films that will challenge those definitions, maybe. Because early on in the... You know, you've gone chronologically through the book, John, but some of those early films, there is no ne- no set style necessarily. Um, the White Snake Enchantress or Panda and the Magic Serpent, the first film we have in the book, was very much just trying to do what Disney was doing, but with a sort of a- Asian cultural reference point. There's a film, The, Be- uh, the Belladonna of Sadness, that's in the book, which is a 1970s um, art film, basically, erotic art film that was made by a spin-off studio of Osamu Tezuka's empire. So he was the guy that created Astro Boy. So in, in many people's you know, understanding of what anime is, he created the format, the template, but he also had um, this side studio that was making anime for adults. And Belladonna of Sadness is basically an erotic psychedelic art movie that was supposed to play alongside um, Fantastic Planet or whatever your European 70s art movies of the day were. So, yeah, so I guess it's one of those things where it's like you can be as specific or as general as you want, and it's not a stupid question at all, John, because it's the sort of thing that could be a three-hour discussion in its own right, and we won't get a right answer for it. (laughs) I appreciate that, Michael, but unfortunately the whole answer you were giving there, I was thinking, well, in the first book we said that Miyazaki and Takahata and Lennon and McCartney... And now you've just said that this book potentially has a Britpop element. So now I'm thinking, who are the filmmakers, that are the Britpop filmmakers that owe everything to the Lennon and McCartney? See, we, we've, we've also just, John, on, on, on Ghibli Attack, we've just done a podcast where we tried to do who are the Lennon and McCartney of Ghibli and who would be the Brian Epstein and who would be the George Martin, because we love doing nonsense like this. Yeah. <laughs> I'd almost want to do the grunge because who's the Pearl Jam, the Nirvana, the Soundgarden, Alice in Chains? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, it's, a, it's, it's an inevitable sort of uh, discussion when you start talking about influences and the anxiety of influence and how these these things play out. But what about you, Jake? I mean, you're you're coming in with these two books, and and you've got to be the sort of the 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 neophyte if that's the right word the guy who's yeah experimental <laughs> subject it's like the stanford prison experiment essentially and you're the you're the you're the univ- innocent university student being thrust into the middle of it um the, the, you're gonna the next book you've got you've definitely got to say right this is a bunch of films i've watched <laughs> you sit down michael and you watch these as well like, i don't know confessions of a window cleaner something like that <laughs> Oh God! I don't know what that would be. see. Michael is far cleverer than me. I'm not. I'm not sure anything what we could do that uh, would would fill that. Vo- I think it was only just this week that Michael that we were talking about some books that I'd unearthed from my university days, and Michael said, "Oh, there's something that you've got that I haven't." It's like, man, we've known each other for five years, and it's taken that long. Um, and so that was the books of Kurt Vonnegut. And I, I somehow don't think that quite has the same mass appeal as a Studio Ghibli book. Um, 
But yeah, maybe when we've really run out of ideas in 10 years' time, I'll make him sit down and read Slaughterhouse 5. Oh, I'll do a podcast with you about the novels of Kurt Vonnegut. uh, (laughs) I I love his work. I was just thinking about him a day because I've become addicted to the... Do you know the New American Library series? They're sort of like black books, hardback books with a a sort of red and white stripe. Oh, and the sort of cursive font on the front yeah oh yeah yeah, yeah exactly i've got the yeah. um J- i've got the james baldwin yeah 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 i've just yeah, I've, yeah. I've got a i've become addicted to those i've gone from like kindle to hardback books with and it's <laughs> got to have a like a little ribbon mm. to keep my uh page as well but the vonnegut I, i'm buying all the vonnegut's of of those books and and rereading them all because i've read them already but i'm it, I just love those books so much that I'm, I'm quite happy to reread books if if that's the format well, that was so just to actually force a link from Kurt Vonnegut <laughs> to, to this this book, because we can do it, is, um, John, I don't know if you've seen the adaptation of Slaughterhouse-Five. No, I haven't. No, I never did. It, it's really, really good. It won hmm. the Grand Prix at Cannes. Um, and it's I think it's a really impressive adaptation of what, even when you're reading it, you're thinking that like no one could make sense of this. And it really, really works. At least I think that. But the editing in it is so impressive. Like this, the the way that it has to join together timelines, locations varying from uh, the Second World War all the way to an alien planet centuries in the future, uh, joining together the same character. And so the editing does these incredible match cuts throughout to make this feel like this constant flow between all of them that you can just transcend time in an instant and satoshi khan who directed millennium actress which is a film in the book cited that film as an influence in his editing style because satoshi khan has that same feeling to his animation that constantly you'd have that rug pulled under you and you're from one scene into another instantly yeah, that is that's definitely high on my watch list. I was reading, I read the review in the background to that, and I was just like, oh wow, this sounds so like a mixture of Zelig and mm. Sunset Boulevard. You know, it's got this sort of. Um, can I ask? Does it have like real film elements in it as well? Uh, it? Do you mean it's real film as in footage? Yeah, it's, it's all anim- it's animated. All animated. Oh, right. Okay. John, John, are you saying that animation isn't real film? <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. Well, I mean, what I meant is, does it have like, uh, let me rephrase that. Does it have grown up film in amidst the childish scribblings of, uh, of a flick book artist? Is that, is that what you, <laughs> does that, does that, the heck tidy it up? It's all animated. It doesn't have any live action footage in. I don't, had you seen, had you seen any other Satoshi Kon films, John? Because I guess Perfect Blue and Paprika are sort of the. Uh, yes, I've seen Paprika, yes. And yes. You know, he, he was a filmmaker as well who you know, very sadly, tragically died very young and left a small body of work, four features, and a TV series as director that are incredible and still ahead of the curve to this day, still inspiring animators around the world. But at, he'd reached a point where I think Paprika premiered in Venice. So he was mm. he was becoming a filmmaker on the festival circuit, the world festival circuit. Uh, but Millennium Actress, we, we chose that one, which I think actually probably if you polled people would be the least well-known or the least widely viewed film of his. But it is one that is such a celebration of cinema using the possibilities of animation with a bit of that Slaughterhouse-Five non-linear narrative style. Um, 
that it's so it's so dizzying but it's it's an example of what we want to show which is that anime isn't this sort of contained world separate from cinema they are drawing inspiration these these directors of animation anime films are feature filmmakers that are drawing inspiration from other filmmakers and in terms to answer your question there's no live action footage but there's lots of footage in there that is riffing on or referencing um familiar films because it's a story about a fictionalized actress that's sort of half based on setsuko hara who's in ozu films of the 1950s and she famously mm. became very reclusive and she retired quite young um and the film is about a film crew going to interview being granted a very rare interview with this reclusive actress and the, the stories she tells mingled with the absolute fanboyish glee of the the interviewer takes them on this journey through the films of her life which in, which include nods to ozu to kurosawa to other genres of, of popular cinema in japan across you know 50 years of cinema it's really dazzling and i think just shows that animation even though animation can be seen as a separate industry because it really is the way that it works it is in dialogue with the broader language and history of film yeah well, sorry, and, go on. well and um for when we were making the sorry not when and for our podcast that we do which started as studio ghibli but then when we ran out of ghibli films we had to move on to other animation studios or other animators and satoshi Kon was the first person that we went to so once once we they're well totally run dry on ghibli stuff it was thinking right who's got this contained kind of story that we can tell across these four films this tv show and a great book actually uh, mm. his manga opus is brilliant um so that that was a really lovely one where we properly got to explore him in, over an extended period of time on the podcast as well and millennium mattress felt like the great opportunity to concentrate a lot of the thoughts that we had had across that podcast series into that one film even though it might not be the most obvious pick I think that's a good thing because I, I was kind of, I, well, as I was reading that chapter and you mentioned uh, Paprika, obviously, in, in, in the chapter, um, I was sort of like, oh, yeah. I, and it kind of, it struck me as a brave move not to do Paprika because that was the one that I imagine people flipping to the contents and looking through the list of films would be like, would be looking for, would be would be expecting. Um, so I thought that was a, that that's a sort of good choice because... Because also people like me who, yeah, have a relatively superficial view of anime, I've seen Paprika, but I haven't seen this. So it's it, it, it's a good way of sort of, uh, of of leading people a little bit further down the garden path, so to speak. Um, and what that film does as well is is uh, at least from what I gather from from reading your the chapter on it, it, it it's um, it typifies a sort of breadth that you were that that you were alluding to, Michael, of the. Of, of what anime can can involve that it can be high schools or it can be sports racing cars and stuff like that and it can be sort of science fiction and fantasy it's very familiar cyberpunk sort of thing but it can also be something totally you know about history and about um uh about life yeah i think it's something peculiarly western but very specifically um american and british view of these different forms of storytelling. I mean, John, you're based mm. in Italy, and Italy's the place where they still have comics for commuters, for, you know, bored blokes on their route home from the bank will pick up a comic for the train home. 
it's the same in Japan, where it really is age, you know, eight months to 80 years should be served by animation or in some mm. form. So we wanted to reflect that in the book because it, re- it really is becoming probably more and more humiliating to come from... I mean, there are many reasons to feel humiliated to come from British culture it's in, the, in today's day and age, but it is particularly when you hear day in, day out. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Some of these maybe dog whistly kind of comments from be them studio heads or film critics or mainstream journalists when they talk about animation and the various other visual art forms that are related to it like manga or comics as being one thing when really it could be anything or everything mm, mm. it's a it's like a lens you know you're, you're looking at things through mm. a certain lens rather or set of lenses yeah uh, but you can look at anything you like and you and as i said some of so many of the filmmakers we talk about so we probably mentioned this on the last time we were on with the ghibli book hayao miyazaki is an absolute animator he could draw anything he could do the entire thing himself if he had the energy and the time and his eyesight was a bit better isao takahata the other filmmaker at ghibli who made grave of the fireflies the tale of the princess kaguya he was not an artist he was a mm. filmmaker or a storyteller who used animation as his lens. And it's the same with this book. You, you've watched um, A Silent Voice. Naoko Yamada, when she was a teenager, liked manga and animation, but also loved live-action cinema. And she still, to this day, you ask her what films are exciting her, and she'll say Xavier Dolan, or she'll say mm. Sofia Coppola. They're just using animation, and what she says about why she loves animation is because in animation you can control every aspect of the shot. There's no worry about the light. There's no worry about the focal length. You can just change all those things. And if you go back and watch a silent voice or her other feature, listen the bluebird, from a craft point of view, what she's doing with depth of field, what she's doing with staging, she is using animation like a live action filmmaker with a camera involved. So it really is not this separate thing it really is something something connected to cinema live action cinema real cinema adult cinema <laughs> Cin- no adult cinema we've got to be careful about to <laughs> cause any confusion there um i mean even uh when i was watching uh just the very beginning of um of the what do you call it for promare there's just a moment where it's it's sort of doing that sort of a city during the day, setting up the city as a sort of a, where this action is going to take place. 
and it sort of goes between the the tower blocks and like the square of like a a, a sun flare on the lens sort of strobes by and it's just a beautiful little moment where it's sort of like obviously that's being animated in as a as a you know there is no sun there is no flare there is no lens for it to be having that and th that idea that anime is putting in a sort of visual flaw to 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 sort of play to our own uh, i guess how we see things how we how we're used to seeing things yeah well and it's amazing that it's in something like that film as well because it makes sense maybe a bit more in something like a silent voice which is very much a kind of real world melodrama based around events that maybe we haven't all experienced but we can very much relate to um and it's all very grounded really and Promare is absolutely bananas and one of the maddest things in the book is is just crazy and it looks crazy as well it's all kind of geometric shapes and nothing at all like the real world in any way but even with that mad design it's still giving you those little moments to think but well, stylistically could be real <laughs> yeah 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 well, people people could just explode into flame at any point just like they do in the real world <laughs> well i mean yeah but uh, it, the analogy is it works perfectly with the world of today mm. you know with our online oh, yeah. online culture and i'm sure you know people uh, in the comments to this podcast will be going what do you mean it's not grown up cinema job <laughs> <laughs> bursting into flame as a as a result i mean one thing you guys have done very very i mean i've been following you guys i've been listening to your podcast following you on uh on social media and it feels to me like uh especially post-covid that now that we're hopefully hopefully post-covid um that you've been out in cinemas you've been doing q a's you've been presenting screenings and it feels like you're doing a really significant you, you know you were talking about earlier about this book is is relates some of the 90s and the uh, the story of how anime comes to britain as well as you know you're seeing it from that perspective but you're you're becoming the that that story aren't you well that's that's a big way oh, i wouldn't i wouldn't claim any ownership to that it it it, it is true though that um post-covid we started this as a podcast and now i'd probably say that really we're a th sort of three-pronged operation we are a podcast we write books and we also do these events um and that's happening right now we are, we are we're doing a book tour and the, the book tour is sort of an excuse to get out in the world and do these screenings because really we feel if there is a sort of any sort of activist sort of edge to what we're doing, we want to get these films on a cinema screen so people can watch them and enjoy them and get them to audiences that maybe haven't seen them in this setting. Or maybe even audiences, sort of as you say, John, maybe they have seen Akira or seen Ghost in the Shell but didn't realise that these other sorts of films existed. So we, the, the sort of first screening of our book tour was a screening of Millennium Actress at um, The Depot in Lewis, which is one of the great um, independent art house cinemas in the country here um but they don't they have they don't tend to show older anime films it's getting better in terms of new releases there are, there are companies working now that make those films available to cinemas up and down the country but there isn't much of a rep scene um, in the way that the bfi may have um, a national screenings tour of akira kurosawa movies or actually the big success of the year was Curzon did a Vim Vendors retrospective that went up and down the country showing his entire film um, 
that catalogue. I went to a, a packed out screening of Paris, Texas on a Sunday morning and I'm like in Brighton. I'm like, wow, this is amazing to see. And also this, seeing this film on the big screen is amazing. And that's sort of how we feel about this. And we have 30 films here that serve different audiences. And we talk to cinemas about what their audience is, whether it's older skewing, maybe they're more interested in history and drama or art. There are films in here that are like in this corner of the world, which is a set in the Second World War, but is about a young woman who wants to be an artist. Similarly, there's Miss Hokusai, which is a biography of the famous Japanese artist Hokusai's daughter, who is also an aspiring artist. Then there are these films that do play to audiences that are interested in history or are interested in pushing genre to the limits of creativity and imagination or reflecting a different point of view on culture or the world around us so that that is absolutely part of our ongoing project now because we believe that there are audiences out there that would be interested in seeing that and every event we do we're surprised and delighted by the people that turn out for it and also jake and i we didn't grow up in the london bubble we both grew up in what would be called the regions even though Manchester is definitely... No, don't tell anyone in Manchester they're from the regions. Um, <laughs> but, the, you know, again, not to use... To lean back on music analogies, but I grew up looking at gig listings, being like, oh, if only I could go to London to see that gig. And it's similar with film screenings. The best... Most of the, most of the cinemas showing rep cinema in the UK are based in London. It's getting better every year. There are some amazing venues around the country showing films, and we want to be part of that to take the films out and about. I've got this compass point plan, John, where I want to, um, I want us to host a screening in the most northerly, southerly, easterly, and westerly cinemas within the British Isles. Um, and yeah, you know, sometimes they might come back and say, "This is a bit niche," um, but then we just move a few miles south and go to the next one. Uh, but we're, we're we're working our way around. But and I think like considering everything that's happened up in Scotland with cinemas and festivals being closed down so quickly, you just had an, another one today as well, the Lighthouse, which has had to close its doors, and it's just so sad. And as Michael said, like growing up, I would go to a place called the Hailsham Pavilion, which is a brilliant independent cinema. But like a new release would come out essentially when it was coming out on dvd because that was the cost of doing everything and you had to, it just had to be that late to be able to afford to put it on and it was brilliant when stuff came around um but even even that cinema struggles and so many more do and so like with that millennium actress screening there was 10 times more people than they would normally get for an anime screening and like it's it's brilliant that by doing the this book the podcast the shows that we can take these films out there, but also that within those communities, there is something different to go and watch as well. And it, the, the people turning up is not necessarily what you'd expect. Of course, when we went to Dundee, like if we go to a town with, or Nottingham, go to a town with a large university population, of course, there'll be people who look like our people, you know, that they're there with their blue hair and their ghibli earrings. But when we went to Lewis or some of these other cinemas we went to we went to Dumfries as well to, to a small cinema there it's 
a mix. There are older people as well who are attracted to come to these screenings. We had the, the, my, my favorite one that I like trotting out is there was an older couple when we went to Nottingham who came along to the screening just because the 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 husband of the couple used to work for Toyota or Mitsubishi and used to commute over to Japan in the 1970s and 80s and was just interested in seeing something different from Japanese cinema. So there, it's really fascinating. In terms of uh, checklists, we've done Scotland, Wales and England. Um, admittedly, in terms of Wales, mostly in Cardiff and the Green Man Festival. Um, we've done a good chunk of Scotland. I know, Jake, you want to go further north. Northern Ireland has been the elusive one. I want to get on a ferry. <laughs> <laughs> I want to travel across the water to host one of these. Uh, but we're, 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 we're... Once, you're on the, once you're on the ferry, it lasts about 10 minutes and then you're really bored for several hours. <laughs> well, we can do it if they've got a screen in the, on the ferry. <gasps> there we'll you do go. a makeshift that show would be there. even better. Yes. This is, this is like Get Back when they're, when they're trying to work <laughs> out where to play. You're just going to end up doing a screening on the, on the ceiling, on the roof of your building. Anyway. <laughs> oh, what's, what's this Michael Lindsay Hoggett keep saying? The amphitheater yeah. is going to be great. We're going to keep doing it. We're going to do that. Yeah. yeah. And we're going to get a boat and we're going to fill it with fans of the podcast yeah. and we're going to be on it for three weeks. It's going to be amazing. Michael's scra- shaking his head. Michael's shaking his head here. I'm shaking, shaking the head at the, the, the majesty of that idea. Um, although I, 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 I do remember on a, on, a, on a family ferry trip over to, I think it would have been over to the Netherlands, I, I, I saw Spider-Man 2 for the first time. So there are cinemas on ferries. You need one of those journeys oh, wow. that's long enough for a two-hour film, maybe. We can do it. I, I went to Ireland on the ferry in 1982. And uh, and it, Never again. I just remember it being no, no. I mean, I was fine. I was ten years old, so I was really excited and all the rest of it. But it was, you know, it was kind of a, a, jo- jo- a longer than I expected. Where, whereabouts did you grow up, John? I grew up origi- I grew up in Baron Furness, near in the countryside near there. I was born in Ulverston, which is where uh, Stan Laurel was born. Mm-hmm. Is that claim to fame? Right, because yeah, there's there's basically a, a, there, there, we've done. Some of the Midlands, we've done quite a lot mm. of the South now, but not the Southwest. We're, we're just booking in some dates that will take us on a bit of a Northwest excursion. Up to the- you should do Ambleside, have a cinema called Zeffirelli's. Yeah, I, I've been to Zeffirelli's. Wow. We're going to Kendall. Right, okay. Uh, yeah, but, but this, um, this Northwest trip is going to be, I, I, yeah, it's going to be from the north tip of Wales up to the Northwest if everything comes together. That'd be quite a fun one. Mm. But it, I mean, in Elverston, you've got the Roxy Cinema, and I was thinking that Roxy, where I went to see Goodfellas when it first came out, and I think I saw my first foreign film in the cinema. Uh, it was Barbet's Feast mm-hmm. in Elverston, uh, because they used to do. I'm not sure if they still do, but they used to do a uh, sort of midweek, you know, f- foreign movie. So um, I, I went to see a bunch of them. I saw The Navigator. Do you remember that film, right. the Vincent Ward film, black and white medieval? sort of AIDS para, para, parable or something. It's kind of strange film. Before he did it, before he went on Alien 3 mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and then got kicked off Alien 3. <laughs> wow. I'm now, I, now what I'm doing is I'm just going as far away as I can to see if Jake can bring it back to the book. <laughs> <laughs> Alien 3. Yeah. Is there any way that we can drag Alien 3 into this? Is there any Fincher mention well, of anything? In the book. Not, not not Fincher, but go back go back to Aliens, James Cameron. 
mm. one of the biggest anime yeah. fans Hollywood has ever seen. Right. He's quoted in the book. I don't know if you've um, uh, read the chapter on Metropolis. Uh, yes, yes, of course. Uh, which is um, the... It's a strange film. It's sort of half a remake of um, of the Fritz Lang film, but also half a tribute to the Osamu Tezuka manga, which uh, famously, or maybe apoc- apocryphally, um, he created a manga called Metropolis, having only seen a single still of the original film. Mm. So the, the the story is completely different, and they sort of mash the two together in this um, in this feature. And James Cameron said that it was a new dawn for, for animation. Um, but that's why I, I kind of love that that um, that there are so many sort of of the great vision visionary Hollywood filmmakers turn to J- to Japan for inspiration. You mentioned a, an apocryphal story as well about Steven Spielberg um, being really uh, influenced by one of the films. But then you kind of um, yeah you 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 put it out there that it's apocryphal that it's not really, yeah it's an ur- well, urban think- legend. So this is um, the Castle of Cagliostro, which so mm. even though we have the Ghibli book where we did all of Ghibli's films, both Hayao Miyazaki and Isao Takahata made films before they founded Studio Ghibli, so they do have films in this book. So the Castle of Cagliostro, the Lupin the Third um, feature film, uh, was Miyazaki's feature debut as a director, um, and. That is a film. Going back to the sort of bad old days of early DVD releases and video VHS releases of that film, had a pull quote on the cover of the VHS release saying, the greatest car chase of all time or the most thrilling adventure movie of all time or some sort of strange quote like that accredited to Steven Spielberg. And there's no source for that. And However, mm. in this sort of beautiful way that the internet tries to make things make sense instead of using the Occam's razor approach of it was just made up. Um, they say Spielberg had, would it have been, what film would he have had that was premiering in Cannes in the early 80s? Maybe it was Raiders of the Lost Ark, maybe had a special screening at Cannes. Yeah, yeah, I and think he did. He yeah. might have seen a, beh- a market screening of Castle of Cagliostro there. The, 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 the sort of contortions the fans have made to try and make it make sense, instead of anyone trying to get, a message to Spielberg saying, did you ever say this? Well, he's on the press tour again. Fablemans is just around the corner. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure somebody listening to this will, will, will be interviewing him Stephen. and will be able to just, just directly ask that question. Speaking of formative film memories, Stephen. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so I've, there's a whole thread that I did trying to dig into this. And like um, the American distributor that re-released Castle of Cagliostro on Blu-ray they piped in as well because they had researchers who were also saying like we've found nothing anywhere i think i found right. convention programs from like as in the magazine pamphlet programs from the mid 80s where they have might be the place where this quote first appeared but mm. um spielberg does love miyazaki's movies he's on record saying that he said that on press tours when he's been to japan i've interviewed kathleen kennedy many years ago before she became public enemy number one for certain star wars fans um and she said that they would uh, yeah, she and frank marshall and um spielberg would look at those films uh, and take great inspiration from them but um yeah there's no there's, there's no proof that spielberg has even mm. seen that film apart from 
I don't know if I mentioned this in the book. This is the other interesting wrinkle. You do, wrinkle. the video game. The video game in the background in the arcade scene in Goonies is mm. <laughs> is mm. an, an arcade game made a few years later that was sort of in the style of um, Dragon's Lair. There was ones that would be half animated, half uh, playable that was used footage from the loop in the third movies. But it's just one of those that's, funny stories that comes up. That's Danny Torrance's jumper in The Shining, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it's the level of, of, of detail. Um, Jake, how, how, how knowledgeable were you about these sort of this broader level of anime before you started the, this project? Because, you know, you, your role as in Ghibli, were you, were you watching outside of Ghibli uh, more yeah, Japanese well, stuff I- before then? In a way, I was more prepared for this one than the Ghibli stuff. Yeah. Um, because going alongside the Ghibli stuff, just out of curiosity, I was checking out stuff that would appear in this. Um, and actually, I'd watched stuff that's in this book before any of the Ghibli stuff as well. Right. Um, but then there was, because we were making these mini series that were about other filmmakers, and we would, they would just kind of binding themselves to the Ghibli story as well and we weren't able to maybe tell those stories in the Ghibli book so there were kind of half formed ideas for chapters and reviews that we had either talked about on the podcast or just hadn't been able to get in and so someone like Mamoru Hosoda who we did a series about and we uh, write about his film Bell in the book um, his previous film Mirai was uh, the LFF Kids Gala Whenever it came around, I think that was 2017, I want to say, uh, 2018. I can't remember. Anyway, that's one that goes like many years before the Ghibli book, um, getting involved in that. And so, yeah, it was um, it was a strange one where some of it was totally new, unlike anything I've ever seen before, and so much fun to dive in headfirst into it. And then some of it felt totally familiar and felt like it was something that we had been talking about for years, and this was finally the opportunity to put pen to paper on it, something like Castle of Cagliostro, where it's key to the Studio Ghibli narrative, but because it's not a Studio Ghibli film, we couldn't put it in the previous book. Mm. I, I think that's so uh, similar to my reaction on reading the book of, of that feeling of I really so many of these films I really want to dive into and have a, have a, a Ninja Scroll was one Red Line was another that that really piqued my interest Millennium Max. Well, if, if you've got if you've got the budget John fly over next week Prince Charles Cinema we're hosting a we're hosting a screening of Red Line and if you get your first screening of it in a cinema mm. you will oh you'll be God. chuffed. What day is it on? Next Wednesday. Oh, I'm teaching on Wednesday. God damn it. <laughs> I teach until seven o'clock. I don't think I can get over in time. Well, well one thing we, I mean, this is um, very much a pipe dream for us, but the books have been translated and released in Italy and Germany, France, Spain. We'd love to do screenings of some of these films or book events out there uh, someday. Maybe our paths will cross. Venice, Venice would be, well, there's, there's two possibilities in Italy. There's a Udine du Far East festival. So it would be uh, interesting to maybe organise a, a screening during the festival of something. Um, and another one would be the University of Venice is one of the few universities in Italy that teaches Japanese as a language. And so, um, yeah, that that you know that wouldn't be you, you've got a bunch of students who uh, would fill would sell out an anime on the big screen 
in 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 Venice. I'm absolutely sure of that. 100%. Well, there we go. There's the there's the next tour. Europe <laughs> European vacation. Yeah. You keep you're going to yeah. go south, north, west and east, but you're going to go so far east that you end up actually in Japan and they're going to be going, "Guys, <laughs> we we know about this. We stuff. know this stuff." <laughs> <laughs> So you just you're just showing like films, I guess. <laughs> it's like a friend I went to. I was in China once, and a friend of mine said, "Oh, look, a Chinese restaurant." And it was like, "It's just a restaurant here, man. It's not a Chinese restaurant." <laughs> when you're in China, they're just restaurants. But you know, um, yeah, you've got to shift your thinking in some way. Mm -hmm. Speaking of which, like one of the things I love about watching Japanese films and Hong Kong movies and Chinese movies, so it's broadening the category out a little bit, is that there are definite moments that, although there is that cross-federalization between sort of the West and the East, um, there are definite moments that when you're watching a Japanese uh, production where the cultural difference sort of rings loud and you sort of go ah okay that's that's interesting um uh, what what are what are the ones that you've sort of noticed watching uh watching anime well i think there's going back to the ghibli book and you know both are on shelves right now so we can talk about both sure absolutely no worries <laughs> go back to the previous writers on film episode for a real deep dive into that one <laughs> yeah um, a link in the show think... notes <laughs> But I think Pompoko is a, a great example of that because uh, it's a brilliant film directed by Isao Takahata, master filmmaker, had made Grave of the Fireflies, had made Only Yesterday, um, and then makes this kind of Watership Down-esque fable about Japanese raccoon dogs uh, and that their forest home is getting torn down for redevelopment and they're kind of fighting against it, which sounds like... That could be nice, kind of Sunday afternoon BBC fair, um, except in kind of traditional Japanese folklore, uh, tanuki, these raccoon dogs, uh, they have giant magical testicles, uh, which can they can use to transform into anything. Uh, and so they do, they kind of transform into humans, they transform into uh, kind of visions of traditional Japanese art to try and scare people. Um, but trying to sell that to a Western audience is very much a struggle because there is a real difference there as to how people uh, might react to the idea of a clan of raccoons with giant magical testicles. There's a difference to how people look at giant testicles. <laughs> the, we look at testicles differently in, this, in these parts. And it, was, it genuinely was a hard film to, to distribute beyond Japan as well. It didn't make it much money internationally at all. Mm. And 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 even today, um, it's it's sort of reduced. Whenever you whenever you mention that film to certain Ghibli fans, it's the one with the testicles. Uh, it mm. even though actually it's an incredibly profound film. It's sort of the Japanese. This is speaking showing my age and speaking to a very particular age range here demographic. It's the Japanese animals of farthing wood because it's a sort of devastating musing on deforestation and rapid urbanization and encroachment but it has this profound layer of what you lose when you lose that natural world seen through the sort of natural pantheon of magical animals um really brilliant film that deserves to be seen more in terms of oh and 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 for real cinema fans john it's uh, a ghibli film that contains some live action it does actually oh right okay yeah. 
Okay. <laughs> now, and when, when I was mentioning live action in terms of Millennium Act, um, Millennium Actress, I kind of meant in that it incorporated into the animation. Uh, oh, that's what Pompoko has. Yeah. yeah, sort of photorealistic. Yeah. Uh, not necessarily even real footage, but photorealistic sort of stuff. Mm. Um, yeah, I, <laughs> that's. Uh, it, I, I take Michael's point as well that um, that we can then get hung up on something which is just sort of sort of matter of fact for that mm. for that culture. So, in a way, that sort of obstructs our way of selling it or distributing it or, or, or talking about it critically in a way that's serious one rather than you know halfway through saying how profound it is and what a great meditation is someone's going to click their fingers and go oh you mean a big magical balls film and mm. and it's going to destroy the the atmosphere somewhat yeah and, and i think we aren't academics who can delve deep into the sort of cultural differences but what we are aware of is how due to an expectation of cultural difference, these films can be exoticized in some way. And you see that in a very positive and you know, uh, good faith kind of way in many of the mainstream writing of about films from Japan. They talk very much about the Japanese-ness. Uh, but for us, coming towards this as sort of world cinema fans, we, all, uh, know, knowing our biases, knowing the limitations of our perspective, we see instead this push and pull between western and eastern influences and time and almost all of these films even though they're made for japanese audiences they do have some consideration or influence or inspiration or they're drawing from from a global point of view and that's what's really fascinating so when you talk about something that's like confound any confounding elements or surprising elements that are very japanese one film in the new book came to mind and it's actually one that does have a lot of inspiration from global literature but it's a film called night on the galactic railroad and that's because it's an adaptation of a novella that's a sort of set text in Japanese kids, you know, for a school, but is very abstract, cosmic, doesn't have much in the way of conflict, doesn't really show its hand very strongly in what its messaging is even. So it has this... It, it, it's, it's a very hard one to get a handle on, very beautiful and moving film and a very slow-moving film as well that uses anthropomorphic animals on a cosmic journey on a train to talk about everything from life to death <laughs> and beyond. Yeah, in, in a way, from, I don't know if I mentioned this in the review, but it reminds me of The Little Prince in, mm. in that way as well, in that each planet on The Little Prince's journey um, you can interpret in so many different ways and it can be about something so minor as the petal on a flower, but that can be something as massive as the mortality of the human mm. race and that, that's just, so that's the stuff that's fascinating to us as well is that um as much as there is this impulse to talk about japanese cinema as this hermetically sealed ne national cinema industry in its own right so many of the filmmakers don't abide by those rules um whether that is the manga artists and animators who were in, were very much heavily influenced by french and italian comics of the 20 mid 20th century the heavy heavy metal kind of generation of alternative comics, mm. or whether that's the fact that in Japan there's a whole um, area of English language literature that exists in translation in Japan that we don't really value as much in the UK. It's part of the reason why the Beatrix Potter um, attractions are very popular for Japanese tourists is because they you know, respond to it in a way that we don't. They very much... Um, 
you know, they respect Raymond Briggs's work in the way that I don't think the UK does. So the, the, this sort of mix of uh, influences and inspirations is what fascinates us. Ghost in the Shell, the, the Mamoru Oshii, the director behind Ghost in the Shell, he grew up on European cinema. He loved Godard. He loved Tarkovsky. Um, and that's what he sees his DNA as. And so as sort of film fans we wanted to sort of uncover that stuff just as much because there are academics doing incredible work delving into the religious, cultural, philosophical aspects of these films. But we're bringing what I suppose as film fans we can bring. If, if somebody is coming to this relatively cold and you wanted to say, okay, forget chronology and all of that, just start with this one movie and, and that's the one you start with. And then, and then if you like that, then you can go you're off to the races which would you which would you choose which would be the one that would that you would think this is the one that will be the gateway drug that we're talking about you'll have to trim the awkward moment when michael and i both reach for our copies off the book because we don't we can't remember what's in it let's have a quick pause um no, 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 no. I bet this is definitely staying in the podcast. So, <laughs> so much of this is the fact that it's like a taster menu. It's like, are you a meat mm. eater or a vegetarian? Do you have wheat allergies? And we could pair you up with a film. Well, that's the thing. It's like there's there's ones that I feel like big, broad crowd pleaser to kind of get you intrigued. I think Your Name is a really good shout. Right. I think there's a reason that that film made loads of money and has founded a big international crowd. Um but I wouldn't necessarily say that that is the one from here that I would say is a, a more that I'm as personally connected to. But I could see that really working as mm. as the gateway. What are you mo- most personally connected to then? In terms of discoveries from this book and, and going through this process, I think Rujin Zed, mm. I, it was a real, uh, real hit for me. Um, it's like Godzilla meets palliative care. Um Right, that's the one set in the hospital. Yes, and I just think it's it's brilliant. It's um, like the animation is is amazing, um, but this idea of someone on a hospital bed which transforms into a mecca, which then descends into a kind of city raising battle downtown, uh, and the kind of ghost of a wife within a machine becoming part of that final battle, it was that that kind of snowballing effect of narrative which went in just kept kind of getting bigger and bigger and more destructive but so surprising as well um that was a real treat and in this corner of the world which we mentioned too i i I think that's the film that i would maybe show a kind of older more bbc4 type generation it's it's the one that i recommended my Mm. mum um right and uh, yeah and so it depends who you're talking to um, but I think, yeah, I, maybe between your name, Rujan Z, and in this corner of the world. If, if, I, I mean, if I'm allowed to sort of yeah. set, have the set menu with the A, B, and C options sure. as well, I think, like your name, I'd po- point to Bell, because I think that Bell says it's it's Mamu Hosoda who, across the course of the last twenty odd years, has made three films about our relationship with the internet at three separate points in the last twenty years, and this is his most recent one about a teenage girl and her relationship with this virtual world where uh, the avatar that you inhabit in that world is an expression of your deep inner soul, and she becomes a glo- like a global pop star sensation in this virtual world whilst mainly being a 
sort of nervous, neurotic, grief, grief-stricken, shy teenager in the real world. Um, I think that is a very profound film and also has so many interesting design elements because Hosoda is somebody who is very interested in broadening the net in terms of the people he works with. So his costume designers for the animation, for his animated films, are often costume designers who work in grown-up movies, live-action movies. Um, or In this one, he had the virtual world actually designed by a real architecture uh, academic. So sort of what would a city populated by billions look like if there was no such thing as gravity in this virtual world? And it looks mm. much more, much better than Meta does. Uh, you know, all of <laughs> all of Facebook's money, you know, it can't dream up something as good as that. Likewise, it's a retelling of Beauty and the Beast, so there is a sort of anchor there. In terms of that older audience, there are a couple of the really interesting films. Jin Ro, The Wolf Brigade is a really interesting one because that is a sort of rain-slicked sci-fi noir alternate history film set in a Japan where um, the war went a different way and they were occupied by Germany. Um, but it's a twisty, dark, and sort of emotionally twisted romantic thriller. It's re- really something, something else. And then probably the, the complete curveball, which I know is a film that Jake likes, and we really want to get a screening of this off the ground because it didn't have much of a release because of the lockdown. Um, Ongaku, which I think is very has great potential to break everybody's conceptions about what anime could be, because um, we say this in the chapter, but every other film in the book has been made by some of the world's greatest artists and animators, you know, sort of slaving away for, for, for months on end. Ongaku's made by people who'd never worked in animation before. It's very much a DIY film about a DIY punk band. And, and it's about this bunch of layabouts who decide to form a band, even though they only have two bases and a set of drums and no musical talent between them. And, it just captures a sense of youthful spirit, but it also plays really well as a sort of outsider film um, in the sense that the characters don't aren't very charming at all and the music they make is not proficient, but it's really, um, really exciting uh, when they get to it. I'm writing those down and I'm checking Netflix and Amazon Prime as we speak in order to... If you notice me looking to one side, it was because I was on my iPad just putting in the names <laughs> to check to check what, what's immediately available. Listen, guys, thank you so much for, uh, for, for coming on the podcast again. I can't wait to talk to you again about your next book, which is going to be about Kurt Vonnegut's <laughs> film adaptations, of which there are only like three, I think. Mother Night and Blothouse yeah. Fire. Well, there's Breakfast of Champions, oh, yeah, the as Bruce well. Willis one. Alan as Rudolph well. film, yeah. And the documentary yeah. that came out this year. Unstuck in time. Well, there we are. At least four episodes. We've yeah. done a four-episode miniseries before, Michael. There, there you we go. Are. There you go. Now we just need a pun for the title. This won't Kurt. No. Well. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we'll come up with it. Listeners, yeah. tell, tell us your ideas for a miniseries title. Uh, thanks, guys. Absolutely great talking to you. And, and congratulations on, on filling up my watch list again with your, with your ideas. Cheers, John. Thank you so much, man. So that was my conversation with Jacob Michael. It was a great deal of fun. I really enjoyed it. Hope you did too. Thanks to Ellie Atkins for the music, Ali Howard for the art, and thank you, listener. Until next week, please take care.
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 